I will make the same statement now that I made in Bible class. All of us are on a different time frame as far as our body clock because of the change in time this morning. And just like most of you, I've been up so long, I feel like I need a nap already. If I can't take one, you can't either. So if I see anybody nodding off this morning, I'll just, Rodney, wake up, wake up. You know, I don't want to have to wake you up to lead the invitation song. I had that happen to me one time. I didn't have to wake the song leader up. I was the song leader. They had to wake me up. But we're glad you're here. Have you ever paid any attention to those pins they mark your money with in the store? I heard tell that if you have a $100 bill, they mark your $100 bill with that pen. I had seen people in front of me in line have that happen to them. And then some places will mark a $20 bill. I've never even understood how they decide whose $20 bill they're going to mark. Norma and I can be in line at the same cash register at the same store. She can hand them a fistful of $20 bills, and they just count them and put them in the cash register. I can hand them one $20 bill, and they look at me, and they reach for that pen to see if it's real. I hadn't figured out what the difference is. But, you know, identifying counterfeit money, it's not as easy as it one time used to be. It was like a man one time that was talking about his uncle that got put into prison for making big, too, big, his, making big money. It was about a quarter of an inch too big. And then I read about a rather inept counterfeiter one time that made a large batch of counterfeit money, only he was not real, well, he just wasn't the brightest bulb in the drawer. And so he made a big batch of $30 bills. Well, now, where in the world would you go to get rid of $30 bills? And he hit on an idea. He decided he would go up to northwest Arkansas. And I can say that because all my grandmother Perkins folks came from northwest Arkansas. But he went up to northwest Arkansas, went into a small town, went into a store there, and he said, could you give me change for a 30? And the guy said, no problem, and he handed him three nines and a three. You see, to the untrained eye, counterfeit money looks exactly like real money. They're the same length. They feel the same. Counterfeiters have gotten so good, the information on the front of the bills seems to be the same. It looks like a real bill. But they're not. So they created that special pen to fight that. And that pen changes colors once you mark it on a bill. And if it's counterfeit, it's going to leave a black mark on there. And there are other ways to recognize counterfeit money. A lot of the old money, you could hold it up to a light, and there was an image of the picture beside the print on the um, bill when you held it up to the light. If you could see that additional image, well, then you knew, well, it's not a fake. Well, the point of all this story about counterfeit money, and the point of all of this about counterfeiting, is the idea that there are a lot of folks in our world today that find 
living for Jesus is a burden. And it's not a joy. You see, folks, if you and I really have the joy of the Lord in our hearts, we can be held up to the light of Jesus Christ and folks will see Jesus living in us. He's going to be living in us and we're going to show forth His likeness. Now, the great tragedy is that some folks, you can't see the joy of the Lord in them because they just haven't ever really given themselves completely over to Jesus Christ. They're counterfeit. They're counterfeit believers. And what makes it so sad is that some folks have done it for so long that they're fooling themselves also. They've convinced themselves. And they've convinced others. They're the real deal. But when you hold them up to the light of Jesus, you just don't see the image of God. Because they think that living for Jesus is a burden. It's not a joy. Living for Jesus is a series of rather unpleasant sacrifices. Going to worship. Giving regularly of our financial means. Those are kind of unpleasant necessities of membership in the church and living the Lord's kind of life. Things like visiting folks that are sick and taking care of people in need like that have had damage from a hurricane maybe or helping in every good work. Those kind of things get to be a burden. And sometimes, even those individual duties like praying and reading the Bible, those are a weight that just has to be patiently borne sometimes. And then the obligation of giving up some, some of our pleasures of the world, that's a heavy sacrifice. It's a burden. And sometimes all of this comes together for a perfect storm. And it keeps living for Jesus from being a joy in our lives. And folks that have those kind of feelings often want to do just as little as is absolutely necessary. They want to just meet the minimum requirements. They want to make sure they don't miss heaven. But they just want to do the minimum. It's kind of like a young man that I knew one time that was in college. And every semester that he was in college, he would go to the very first class and he would get the professors, the professor would pass out the syllabus. And when the professor would pass out the syllabus, this young man would take that syllabus and look at it. And he would see what day's tests were going to be held on, what papers had to be done. And he would see just what the minimum requirements were to pass that course. He would go to class as little as was absolutely necessary. He'd show up on test day and he'd take the test. He'd write his papers and he'd turn his papers in. 
But based on that syllabus, he did just the bare minimum that he had to do to pass that course and get his three semesters or four semester hours of credit for that class. And if you doubt the validity of that story, I'll show you my transcript because I got the grades to prove that's what I did. Well, just in that same way, sometimes we get the syllabus. And when we get the syllabus, we look through the syllabus and say, Okay, Lord, what's the bare minimum I've got to do to get to heaven? Because I want to make sure, Lord, I don't go beyond the minimum. Reminds me of a story I read one time about old Hickory. You know, that's Andrew Jackson. Well, it seems that Andrew Jackson finally made a decision one time that he ought to be a church member. So he goes to the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Nashville, Tennessee. And he says, I want to be a member. And the preacher said, well, Mr. Jackson, there's some questions I have to ask you. And one of the questions that he asked Andrew Jackson was, he said, Mr. Jackson, do you forgive your enemies? Well, you see, being a spectacular military man, being a political leader, Andrew Jackson had made some enemies. And so he asked the preacher, he said, you want to know if I forgive my enemies? Yes, Mr. Jackson, do you forgive your enemies? He said, is that absolutely necessary? And the preacher said, well, Mr. Jackson, yes, I'm afraid that's necessary. He said, well, if I have to, then I forgive them. But there's that implication there that Andrew Jackson didn't want to forgive them. But if it was absolutely necessary, then that's what he was going to do. Well, maybe the great tragedy of our day and time is that that's the feeling among a lot of folks that are following Jesus. That we're going to do just what's absolutely necessary, but nothing else. In our world today, there are a lot of folks that never have followed Jesus. And they don't want to follow Jesus. Because they consider that living for Jesus would be a burden. That the sacrifices are too heavy. It interrupts normal living. It destroys liberty and infringes on freedom. So when it comes to living for Jesus, they're going to pass. But here's what we've got to understand. We were lost. And now we've been redeemed. Those Christians in the first century, when Peter preached that sermon on Pentecost, and he told that audience assembled there, he said, this same Jesus you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they heard that and they were pricked in their hearts and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises to you and your children and all of them that are far off. 
Dr. Luke says that with many other words he testified and exhorted and said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Those folks did not consider it to be burdensome to live for Jesus. And they gave up a whole lot more than we have to do. You see, Paul talks about all of us. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says there is none righteous. No, not one. And in that same chapter, he says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In John, 1 John chapter 1, John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John said, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. John also says in that same first chapter of 1 John, that if we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. Go back with me to the early morning of time. There in that paradise called Eden, God had placed Adam and Eve, and He had given them that beautiful garden to dress and to keep. And God said, you can eat the fruit of any tree in this garden except the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat thereof you shall surely die. Well, that was just too big a temptation. You know, if you want to make a kid do something, tell him he can't. God said to Adam and Eve, you don't eat that tree, and they did. And the result of their rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden was that it opened the floodgates of sin. And since that time, Every man and woman born on the footstool of God, with the exception of Jesus Christ, have been sinners. Our thought process, our thought process needs to not focus on what the demands of Christianity are. Our thought process doesn't need to focus on what it means to live for Jesus. Our thought process needs to go back and, and go back to the basics And our thought process needs to begin with the fact that we were lost and we were in sin and we were in need of redemption. And that when we were in need of redemption, God sent His Son Jesus to save our souls. Paul brings it into clear focus in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. He says that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made near by the blood of Christ. That's the King James Version. Here is that same passage in the contemporary English Version. At that time you did not know about Christ. You were foreigners to the people of Israel. And you had no part in the promises God had made to them. You were living in this world without hope and without God, and you were far from God. Now listen to what he says. But Christ offered His life's blood as a sacrifice and brought you near to God. We need to emphasize that phrase. 
having no hope and without God in this world. That was our condition before Jesus came. Before Jesus gave us the way of escape. Before Jesus brought salvation for us. Romans chapter 5, Paul says that God commended His love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were estranged from God. Without hope. And then Jesus came and reconciled us to the Father. Peter adds to our understanding of this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 through 23. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See to it that you love one another with a pure heart fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The key word in that whole passage is redemption. Jesus paid the penalty and bought us back from the bondage of sin. Until Jesus paid the price. Until Jesus paid my sin death, debt. I was without hope. Till Jesus paid the debt for my sin, I was without hope and destined to spend eternity in hell. But Jesus came. Praise God, He came. And when Jesus came, He reconciled me to the Father. We're new creatures. Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That means that not only are we washed, not only are we clean. He says all things have become new. Not only are we washed, not only are we clean. Guess what else? We've got new attitudes. We've got a new eternal destiny. We've got a new set of goals. We've got a new system of values. We have a new life. And when we have that new life in Jesus Christ, when we have the joy of the Lord down in our hearts, things that once upon a time would have been a burden are no longer a burden to us. Paul writes to the Philippians. And when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, those things I once counted gain, I count loss for Christ. 
When Paul says those things I once counted gain, I count loss for Christ. You know what that means? That means Paul says, I have found a whole new set of priorities. So you see, living for Jesus isn't a burden. When we begin to live for Jesus and we have this new set of of priorities, we live a new kind of life. At one time, we were the servants of sin. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 6. But he says through obedience to Jesus Christ, we're no longer the servants of sin. We're the servants of righteousness. So we're a different kind of people. We're a new kind of folks. Jesus Christ makes us live life on a higher plane. Because Jesus bought and paid for us with His blood. We live life on a higher plane. We have a whole new outlook on life. Jesus was on this earth. He told the disciples. He said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. It's that kind of self-denial that we find living for Jesus. A denial of self and putting others first. Imagine a young man that wants to compete in the Olympics. And wanting to compete in the Olympics, he spends several thousand hours during his youth and early manhood in training because he wants to be a champion athlete and then see this young man after our years of training at the very top of his sport wearing the Olympic coat with the insignia showing performing flawlessly in the competition and winning a gold medal and he appears on the winner's platform and he's interviewed by the media and the media says, did you have to make a lot of sacrifice to get here? Yes, I, I made a lot of sacrifices to be here on the winner's platform today. I don't ever get to eat any fried bacon or fried sausage or fatty foods or good gooey desserts. That's why I'm not a champion athlete. Yes, I had to make a lot of sacrifices to be here. I worked long hours in training. I gave up eating a lot of the rich foods other people would eat. But the program of training was a blessing, he said. Because through that training, I achieved this goal of lasting importance. Living for Jesus. Living for Jesus. We're competing in something far greater and far more significant than the Olympics. And someday, when our forms have been bended low, we'll look back and we're going to be able to say, you know, I didn't really give up anything of real importance because living for Jesus is a pure blessing. It's like that song that we sing sometimes. The song written by Bill Gaither, The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The impetus for that song, if you'll remember, was when Bill Gaither's grandmother 
was near the point of death. And his name was William James Gaither, but she called him, being his grandmother, she called him Billy Jim. And sitting there next to her one day, he asked her, he says, Grandmother, was it worth it? All the sacrifices that you made, all the things you did without, was living for Jesus really worth it? And she looked at him and tears came down her face and she said, Oh yes, Billy Jim. It was worth it and then some. Because I found out that the longer I served the Lord, the sweeter the Lord was. And so, because of that, Bill Gaither wrote a song, The Longer I Serve Him, The Sweeter He Grows. You see, when we start to really serve Jesus, when we start to really live for Jesus, we're going to find out that same thing. We're going to find out the longer that we serve Him, the sweeter He grows. If you've never started on that life with Jesus, I'd encourage you to do it before you leave this building today. If you did it once upon a time, but you haven't lived His kind of life, I'd ask you to make a decision to resolve today to start living for Jesus once again and be able to sing that song, The Longer I Serve Him, The Sweeter He Grows. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.